Welcome to the Friday Take, a brand new Fit for Purpose podcast reviewing the week's news and events with me, Matthew McPherson, and my co-host, Nick Forbes. So let's get started. Good afternoon, Nick. Where are you? Hello. Well, I'm down in London at the moment. It's a very hot, muggy day down here, and uh, I'm off back up to Newcastle this evening, so I'm very much looking forward to the blast of cold air that hits you when you step off the train at the station. You're looking forward to the uh, ever-smooth train services from, from London? Well, of course, now it's a nationalised service uh, on the LNAR, on the, east, on, the, on the East Coast. Uh, it runs to perfection most of the time. Nationalised by Jeremy Corbyn, of course. Uh, well, um, along with many things that he might not have nationalised, but when the argument for nationalising them. Well, that's all to win an election, when the argument. Oh, well, Actually, in all seriousness, uh, about 60% of the public, last time there was a poll on this, said that they supported nationalisation of the railway. And uh, it's really quite uh, an odd thing to have the track ticketing companies, the train operating companies and the rolling stock companies, all as different entities without being joined up. One of the things that I know we're moving towards is the Great British Railway concept. It's not exactly British Rail, but more like the sort of London franchise model for transport, where there'd be an overall contract and then everybody would expected to require the same livery, the same timetables and so on. And you know, one of the other things that I think is uh, a, a real challenge around railways, and i plunged straight into railways before we've talked about the events of the last week, but it's one of those public services that just doesn't really change according to changing needs and circumstances. So most of the rail journeys that we have now are the rail journeys that we had pre-COVID, for example. Um, and we're used to standard five-day-a-week service with different services at weekends. And I think it was a question around um, whether we need some fundamental reform of the system in order to make sure it is... Uh, modernised and continues to be fit for purpose for the future, given so much change going on in society. One of the things I think is really interesting is the way that the people's views of the railways don't cross those normal, traditional, conservative Labour you know, party lines. I was in Newcastle yesterday and I was chatting to my taxi driver. He was, you know, huge Leave voter, always voted conservative his entire life, and yet said, you know, no, I'm very much in favour of nationalising railways. I think it's a very interesting... And it, it, it's an it's, a, it's an interesting way in terms of people's political views that that it crosses that, that what is normally quite a big party divided line. A conservative Brexit voting taxi driver in Newcastle—that's quite a rarity, surely. <laughs> well, you know, since the days of Boris Johnson, maybe less than. <laughs> anyway, should we? No, we well, do you know? Uh, since we last spoke, one of the things that. Uh, has occurred in politics, which everybody was sort of looking to as an indication about what's the direction of travel, what's the next direction looking like. And that was the three by-elections that were held last Thursday. And I think if anybody's looking for certainty and clarity and a sense of uh, absolute, definitively, this is what's going to happen, they're probably a bit disappointed now, aren't they? Well, certainly. I think uh, things are all up in the air, especially after... You'd, you'd think, looking at the news on uh, Friday morning, that Rishi Sunak had swept the board and won all three. Um, and it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, how, um, you know, these were these were three by-elections, um, two of which the Conservative lost catastrophically, and yet the media coverage was all about Labour's failure to win uh, 
Oaksbridge and South Ryslip, um, which I think probably genuinely down to some local issues on the doorstep. Uh, and we, we can maybe talk about some of those because I think quite relevant in terms of uh, a, a policy agenda around net zero. But do you think people will be going into the summer recess uh, happy ahead of party conference season? Was there something in each of the by-election results to please all of the parties? Or do you think the Prime Minister is still really in a difficult place? Well, I think there was certainly something in each of the by-elections for all of the parties. The Conservatives are obviously absolutely overjoined. Well, we're holding on to Uxbridge and, you know, by 450 votes, it, it's not very much, but they were certainly overjoyed by it. I think actually, though, if you look, and I wrote this, wrote about this in my Sunday Take, take article on, on, on the website um, last week, I think for me, the most significant result and the one that should worry uh, the Conservative Party the most is that result in Selby. I mean, this is rock solid North Yorkshire, countryside, commuters, you know, wealthy commuters to both Leeds and York. I mean, I've got family in, in Tadcaster, which is part of the constituency, and it, it is proper true blue territory. And some people have made the mistake of saying, well, Labour held Selby by, you know, from 1997 until 2010. It's a very different seat. It was a much it was a much more Labour seat. And actually, that new seat has been recreated in the boundary change. The, the Selby and Ainsley seat that, that, that Keir Starmer and the other kid, Kim Ava, won last week, is you know much more traditional Brexit voting, rock solid conservative North, North Yorkshire territory. Which is your backyard. And Labour didn't just win it, but they won it by four thousand on one of the biggest swings we've ever seen. Now, of course, as I said, necessarily a, an indication they can hold that seat in the general election. We we saw you know the Mid Staffordshire by election in nineteen nineteen was. You know, did did Labour absolutely nothing to win it in uh, in the ninety two election? They didn't win it in nineteen ninety seven. So you've got to always take these by elections with a, a pinch of salt. But I think for me that was the the most significant of the three results. I think the others were very much expected, particularly Summerton was very much accept, uh, expected that the Dems would do well there. They'd been working it for a while. There was specific local circumstances. But in terms of Selby, for me, that was the one that should concern the Conservative Party the most. I think that's that's I think probably the 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 general view within Labour too, and um, I mean you you can't deny it was an absolutely stunning by-election result. And hats off to Keir Maver, the new MP there, uh, ran an absolutely brilliant campaign. And, you know, I was chatting to a friend of mine who's a Labour Party member in um, Selby, and she was saying, you know, he's such an amazing campaigner. He's uh, wise beyond his years and. She's normally a bit cynical about young people putting themselves forward in politics, but she she was absolutely full of praise for him, genuinely full of praise for him. Um, and I think that's a really good thing for politics, that somebody with youth and enthusiasm is coming in and will want to have an impact and make a difference. And of course, on the boundary changes, the seat nominally becomes more winnable for Labour. And I think the... Uh, in a way, what happened in Uxbridge... I think there's a danger of people over-interpreting this in terms of what it means for um, the future. And I think you're right. I think Selby is probably the most, most significant of all of those in terms of by-election results. I mean, my, my personal take on it was that I thought people were, on the whole, voting against the party that they liked even less than the one they voted for. Uh, a sort of plague on your, all your houses, but a particular plague on yours, so I'm going to go for you, vote for the other lot kind of thing. And also a bit of a kind of vote against 
the establishment, whatever people perceived the establishment to be at the time. And I think that's really problematic for the current government in the general election because they cannot escape the fact that they are the establishment figures, the government of the day will be held to account for delivery or not delivery of uh, promises. And I think it feels to me as though people have made up their minds that want to change. Do you think Labour has an expectation management problem? Well, it's one of many problems Labour has. I think, you know, we saw this a bit in the 2015 general election. A lot of Labour figures were very confident that Labour had won the 2015 general election because they were looking at Twitter. Right. And Twitter was overwhelmingly supportive, lots and lots of, you know. But of course, what you don't realise is it's just an echo chamber and a bubble of people who are like you. And so you just don't see the other um, aside, the other people's support. And it was a bit like that, actually, the Brexit referendum, because I remember being at the count in Newcastle that night and thinking, well, I thought we'd done really well with the Remain campaign. Where the heck have all of these Leave votes come from? Because uh, there were far more than you would have predicted on the based on the conversations we had on the doorstep. Um, so I think you've got to be really careful about um, uh, over predicting uh, on 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 the basis of particular results. I also think if we, before we move off the by election, I think the the Uxbridge one was quite interesting because it was genuinely about a local issue and. Whether that local issue was represented fairly or not by the parties, uh, it, it was clearly a significant motivating factor on the doorstep. And I think that tells us a couple of things. Firstly, Labour needs to learn from that because that was an entirely predictable political attack on Labour that just wasn't predicted in the by-election and could have been and the, the outcome could have been different. Uh, so in, in a way, good for Labour to have learned that lesson now rather than have to learn it the very hard way in the general election. But the other thing that I think is perhaps a bit more worrying is that it shows that negative campaigning, divisive campaigning, um, dog whistle campaigning and uh, culture war type campaigning, it can be electorally successful. And I think that's a worry in terms of the tone of the next election, which I think will be really vicious and nasty and not very pleasant at all. I think... On Uxbridge, you know, this is one of those really interesting issues because it actually only affects about 10% of cars or, or people with cars within that constituency. Yet, most people, when they were polled about this, there was some interesting polling from YouGov on this, actually said that they were they were very concerned about having to pay £12.50 to drive their car. There wasn't that understanding that it was only applying to certain cars. And it was it was one of those policies that people thought would affect them when actually for the vast majority of people just wouldn't. And it's one of those policies that you have to question whether it's sensible to put something like that in place, given that it's inevitably going to be a temporary measure, even if it's in place for a decade, because at some point we'll have cars which are pretty much emission free and there'll be no need for the ULAs. Same with clean air zones. And we had, this was exactly the battle that I had in Newcastle over the... Uh, the Category C clean air zone, which doesn't include private vehicles, thankfully, because that would have been an absolute nightmare. Um, but uh, it, it, the there were a number of roads in Newcastle which triggered the requirement for an intervention. Client Earth took the government to court, saying that you need a plan to do this. The government came, basically wrote to us and said, 
the only solution here that you can use is a clean air zone, even though we pointed out that there were lots of other different solutions that were in loss, less costly, less disruptive, less uh, politically difficult. But no, it was a, it was a kind of real sledgehammer to crack a nut kind of issue. And I suspect the same is of the ULEs. And, you know, the other thing is, and you, you must have known this from, from your time in, uh, in, in political offices, anything to do with traffic and transport generates the most extraordinary amount of cons- correspondence and negativity. And it's usually the fear of change rather than the change itself that causes the, uh, the real uh, issues um, because the opposition often melts away once the scheme's been introduced. But my goodness, nothing gets people's gander up quite as much as proposing some minor changes to the roads run by where they live. Yeah, it's very true. And, you know, it's something which, you know, I have family in Newcastle where there's not that understanding of exactly how a scheme is going to work. You know, you have the, the complicated here how they work in other cities, but not necessarily how the fact that they're different between different cities. Mm. There can be that 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 fear that it's going to apply to to everyone and actually you know for people who you know well for for a lot of people that is a huge amount of money 12 pounds 50 to be spending every single day if they need to use their car and i think there's a very big difference between a, a clear clean air zone that applies to this to the city center so in newcastle it applies very much it's a very contained city center area isn't it um compared to one that actually goes right out to the suburbs and i guess that is the fear that more people are concerned about I don't want to minimise the issue because the, the, the issue in Newcastle, it, uh, the clean air zone was triggered because there were a number of roads, including the the central motorway, uh, the, you know, the, the stretch of it that runs just north of the Tyne Bridge, so the bit that's usually congested in rush hour. Um, th- that was the bit of road that was uh, the, the major trigger for the clean air zone. Well, of course, that, it's only a problem twice a day in rush hour. There are different ways of dealing with a rush hour. And actually... It's better to have traffic on those major roads rather than taking detours through residential areas and bringing pollution to residential streets. But there is, Diana, I don't know whether you find this about the difference between Newcastle and London, but I notice when I'm down here in London, I often get choked up with the air quality, which just doesn't happen back in Newcastle. And quite often I end the day with a sort of tickly throat and a slightly tickly nose and uh, I'm almost convinced that's down to extra pollution in the environment. I noticed it in particular when I first moved down. Actually, if, you, if you're ever wearing a shirt, you can often see it on the on like the cuffs of your shirt. It will show up. I actually saw a really interesting and thoughtful interview about this with with Emily Thornbury. Um, it was talking obviously about the result and the some of the disappointment of the result. And she was saying how she's just been diagnosed with asthma. Um. And you know, undoubtedly down to the fact that she's lived in London and being diagnosed, you know, quite a bit later in life. And actually, that's that is that is a London problem, and um, it's probably going to be a problem for still a very long time to come. And it's it's, it's a, what I think has been very interesting to sort of move on from those violations is there has been a real push to sort of end the green agenda that we've seen over the last uh, the last week since those by elections. There's been talk of number ten dropping some of those green policies do you that's a route that labor are going to go down now no uh and i think i think it would be a mistake to interpret the uxbridge by-election result as a a vote against green policies generally i i I was saying earlier people always object to traffic and transport changes 
and I think we you can't really extrapolate from uh, the particular issue about the ultra low emission zone in London to saying that means there's general opposition to all net zero policies because I, I just don't think that's true and I think I think it's a bit of a danger that uh, the Conservative Party kind of overreacts to this and of course there are some who are waiting in the wings who've been actively looking for a cause to champion a reduction in uh, support for uh, net zero and green initiatives in the in, in the Conservative Party um, and uh, I, I think we saw a bit of a wobble uh, uh, with Kia and Sadiq over the last weekend um, but I don't think that means that Labour is in any way going to water down its uh, approach to net zero its commitment to using that as a way of rebalancing the economy or indeed wanting to clear the moral high ground for improving health because the, you know, the, the flip side of not having an ultra low emission zone is so how many children are you prepared to see die then it's really interesting polling out about this actually and there's a perception i think particularly in those the red wall voters for example don't care about green issues actually there was some polling out yesterday from more in common um done by YouGov, which said that actually that the opposite of that is the case um red wall voters care more about uh you know the impact on temperatures families jobs uh the impact on the country than than actually voters at large um so i think there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of confusion about what people actually care about when it comes to this and you know swing voters again it also is in this poll swing voters do not think that the uh government is doing enough on green policies so yeah. I think I, I think it's going to be an interesting debate, but it's certainly not the vote winner that some people think it might be or well, hope it might be. Well, I, I saw a bit of research not so long ago that said that um, councillors up for election who have campaigned uh, uh, for low traffic neighbourhoods or similar type schemes in their local areas uh, aren't disadvantaged to the ballot box. And in fact, in some, I think it was Labour, it actually has a slight advantage to them um, in electorally. And I think the specific issue about traffic issues is because cars aren't just another mode of transport alongside other types of transport. Culturally and symbolically, they represent freedom, choice, the ability to do what you want at a particular time. And so I think part of the reason why there's always such backlash on traffic issues is because subconsciously people feel it's, it's that threat of uh, choice and threat of freedom uh, at stake rather than simply switching from one type of transport to another and we have to understand that culturally if we need to, if we want to make some serious changes uh, to our transport infrastructure but i agree with you i think um and particularly policies around net zero because frankly most people don't really know what net zero is and what it means and there's a danger that it becomes what that part that sort of exclusive language in politics that people use as a way of talking to each other in shorthand but cutting a lot of people out as a result but i think it was presented as reducing household energy bills uh better insulation uh better uh, energy consumption um ability potentially to uh, offset some of your energy bills by generating your own through a micro system at home all of those kind of things i think are the kind of things that people will just say well that's a no-brainer of course we'll go for that one of the things that I think actually Ed Miliband has done a really, really good job on as Shadow and Keir as well as as, as Shadow um, Climate Change and their Zero Secretary is to tie 
very closely together. We could see this at conference last year. The idea of net zero and cheaper bills. And that is something that no politician has ever been able to do successfully. It has always been seen as you can push for net zero, but that means higher bills, weaker energy security, actually tied those two things together. And that is the achievement. And I'm beyond political lines. You know, anyone who cares about the environment, um, whether it's on the conservative side, you've got people like Zach Goldsmith, or on the Labour side, where you've got people who are genuinely passionate like, about it, like, like Ed, for example. And tying those two things together would be very the, the two big opposing forces in politics are fear and hope. And virtually every election campaign, you can see the, the division line between the party that's campaigning for fear because it, uh, uh, you know, it's running a negative campaign about issues or the party of hope. And the pendulum swings. Sometimes people are feeling anxious and therefore fear wins. Sometimes people are feeling more optimistic and hope wins. And for such a long time, the climate change and net zero agenda has really been uh, the preserve of people who've campaigned to stop things happening. You know, don't take as many foreign holidays, don't fly as much, don't use uh, essential heating as much, don't follow this particular type of diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, I think it's felt negative and a bit preachy to a lot of people, which is why I think the genius of what Keir and Ed have done is reframe it as this can help your lives get better. This can help future generations save money on their energy bills. This can save household running costs. And that, that I think, capturing that sense of hope and a sense that it's a positive change rather than it's a negative change that's reducing people's freedoms is a really important political game changer, I think. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, 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 I completely agree. So we had the by-elections. And then MPs have gone off on holiday for six weeks. Uh, well, they've gone to their constituencies, haven't they? I am being... I'm sure, for plenty of them, lovely uh, holiday. Um, there is, of course, always this perception every year that MPs go on holiday for six weeks of the year. They, they basically are in recess for the same time as the school summer holidays. Of course, we all know that's not true, and most MPs, not all of them, will be out working incredibly hard in their constituencies doing surgeries and visits and all the rest of it um but i always well, think it's worth putting that myth to to bed the idea oh, that they go off and do nothing for the summer yeah ab- absolutely although i bet there are a few party leaders who are really quite grateful that they haven't got the constant scrutiny and clamor of parliament and their groupings within parliament to deal with over the summer that must be a nice sense of light relief just actually be able to get on and do the job rather than having to worry about the people on the benches behind you, which is often the lot of a leader, uh, uh, particularly so at the moment on uh, the Conservative side, I think. Yeah, well, certainly he has, uh, Rishi Sunak has some very restless um, backbenches. And we kind of now, so we're going into the summer recess, we kind of now have this long break uh, over the summer of Parliament. We're back for a couple of weeks, and we've got a couple of uh, Purpose Coalition events, actually, in, in Parliament um uh, when when it returns, it used, to, it used to be called silly season. You know, you're, you're far too young to know this, but silly season was from the Queen Mother's birthday to last night of the proms. It's basically when most of the national press lost took, lost leave of its, took leave of its senses, and you got all sorts of weird and wonderful stories about um, you know singing acorns or whatever it might happen to be. And uh, it just happens all year round now, doesn't it? Uh, well, I think you know silly season is still in silly year, really. 
Um, of course, we no longer have a queen mother, uh, although we do have last night of the prompt. Uh, so, uh, yeah, silly season. It's that time of year when uh, there's no there's no main political news or less political news. So all sorts of other human interest stories are found and promoted. And we're already starting to see over the summer at rolling in to the conference season, which I think is going to be probably the most important that we've seen of this parliament. I mean, it will probably be the last set of party conferences before the next general election. Uh, could There could be one more, but, but we don't yet know. Yeah. It's going to be very important for Labour. It's going to be very important for Rishi Sunak as his first party conference. What do you think the parties are going to be doing over the summer in order to start preparing for that that season? Well, um, I mean, party conferences, it, it is, in many ways, they're quite an old-fashioned thing um, because, it, you know, in modern political terms, they're really quite risky because the, um, certainly for Labour, the opportunity for people to get up and attack the party and get national coverage for doing that uh, in the party's own conference is really quite great. Um, and, uh, you know, there are always complaints that Labour is stage managing it and uh, that it's just a PR fest. Actually, Labour's policy, Labour's conference is always the most important event of the calendar, partly because what Labour Party conference does is set the themes for Labour's internal policy discussions for the coming year or the coming two years. And that means that this year's conference won't just set the policy agenda for Labour, it'll basically set the outline of the manifesto for Labour. And I think that's going to be really interesting. And we're pretty confident that that's going to be mainly based around the five missions that Keir announced back in January. You and I have been working with quite a lot of our members uh, around events at party conference. There's definitely a very strong interest in having a presence there this year. And we've got some great organisations with fantastic stories to tell, whether it's about apprenticeships or skills training or um, uh, getting people into the workplace from disadvantaged backgrounds or um, helping their local community by reinvesting some of their profits. You know, there's some great stories there. And many of the Purpose Coalition members, I think, uh, will find themselves in really strong alignment with the values of Labour. And I hope that the work that we can do over the next year or so is about demonstrating to Labour that our members can be part of a potential Labour government's delivery programme too. Yeah, absolutely. And actually one of the events at Conference that I'm most looking forward to is the one that we're doing in association with Oldmore Bank around growth and going for yeah. growth and how, how banks can help support SMEs. And I, what, one of the things I think that's really important in those missions is that growth has been put front and centre. There's been a perception since Liz Truss um spent six weeks uh, with the economy last year that that growth is something that you can't do that it's not important that we we, we don't focus on we actually Keir Starmer's put it front and center and said yes we absolutely need to to, to go for growth and boost jobs and productivity um and I, th- I think it'll be a really important part of the conference I think every organization needs to be thinking that their contribution to the course the other missions as well and certainly in the labor context, what does growth look like that is responsible and sustainable? Uh, because there is a, a, sometimes a backlash from the left of British politics that growth is exploitation of people and planet and that we should be moving towards a more circular economy and uh, 
we, we should be less obsessed with growth and more obsessed with sustainability. And I'm not saying that those arguments are wrong or misfounded. I think they're quite important ones. But with a growing population uh, and in a global context where international trade is going to be increasingly significant now that we're outside of the EU trading block, making sure that we have a, a clear commitment to growth, which also addresses our social challenges, our inequalities, our poverty levels in some parts of the country, I think is absolutely essential. And it feels as though we've allowed over the last decade or so economic growth and social policy to be seen as different things, whereas actually they're the same thing. They're just two sides of the same coin. Creating more and better jobs and building more and better homes is good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll it'll be, I think, a very key part of the Labour Party conference and, and what organisations are talking about. And all of our events are actually going to tie very closely to each of those five missions. And I think that's going to be important for organisations to think about when they're uh, talking to labourers, how do they link in with those those policies and, and, those, and those those missions. One of the things that we might get you though, because I know champagne flows freely at Conservative Party conference, but I don't think not well, <laughs> well, you've only seen a bottle of champagne at the Labour Party conference unless it was a raffle prize. What do what what do they drink at the Labour Party conference? Is it is it Diet Coke and, and orange juice or Oh it depends who's watching. Um <laughs> if you don't care, Prosecco. If you're trying to be up there with and display, display your proletarian links, probably beer. Well, I think there'll be a lot more money spent on the uh, Labour Party conference hospitality this year than there might have been in recent uh, recent years. Back to the, back to the maybe back to the prawn cocktail offensive. Well, it's nice for Labour to have something to celebrate. Although, uh, you know, I've been I've been in this circumstance myself actually, where I've been through leadership election campaigns that all my evidence and data was telling me that. I was, I won. I was, you know, it was fine. But you just don't believe it until you see the fine results. There's almost a superstition around it, and so that's going to be one of the uh, the interesting things about Labour Party conference this year. To what extent does Labour set out a really clear direction of travel? Now, got the missions. There might be some other stuff as well. Uh, and how much does it risk? almost creating its own tack lines by doing so, so far ahead of a potential general election. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, I think, is going to be one of the interesting things to watch. And We've seen uh, this already with the childcare policy that Bridget Phillips has set up, almost entirely, you know, government said, thanks very much, great idea, we'll take it up ourselves. And yes. That is a big risk for all opposition uh, parties to, to, be, to be putting forward these policies too far in advance. And then discover that uh, the government of the day decides to take them as their own. I think there's also something really quite important for me, which is a sense that government can actually change things for the better, which is a belief that we've sort of lost to a large extent in this country recently. And that's, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, that's worrying if you believe in democracy, because the idea that actually democracy is not much worth it because it doesn't really improve people's lives, is very, very dangerous. That kind of, they're all the same type attitude. That, that that some people... Yeah, that, that, that complacency, I think, opens up fertile ground for um, uh, the, the, the far right and fascism. 
And before we get to conference, there's probably one key thing that we should touch on. The Barbie shuffle. <laughs> well, I'm going to see it. I've seen it. You have that old thing, have you? It's great. I need to see it. It's, it's a fascinating life. Well, but you know, I, I, I would not tell you it was going to be my thing either. But it's a, it's a terrific critique of modern social structures, as well as being very interesting. Fun. Yeah, it's, it's a very political movie then. Um, yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you can't help but walk. I've seen planes with it on, I've seen buses, I've seen a Barbie themed ice cream. It's quite extraordinary, really. Oh, yeah. Well, and and without giving any plot twists away, because I'm sure you're going to see it at some point, um, it, 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 it sends Mattel and uh, uh, previous incarnations of Barbie up something rotten. It's very, very, very funny. As well as being quite profound, so yeah, I, I and and various of my friends are doing the um, the sort of um, the two films in one go uh, experience, um, and you know Oppenheimer and then uh, Barbie, Barbieheimer or Oppenbarb or whatever it's called. Back to back, I hear. Back to back, exactly. Um, which you know maybe we should do at some point over the summer now that we've got a little more time on our hands. Um, well, certainly. So, we, well, we, I, I jumped straight into Barbie before we got into uh, reshuffles. Although, there well, is a I mean, it feels like we've been talking about Keir Starmer's reshuffle for at least a year. Um, it feels like there's a question of when will it actually come? Is it going to happen? Is it going to, is it, is he, I mean, I suppose for any opposition party, you'd probably be asking yourself the question, why would I have a reshuffle when I'm 20 points ahead consistently in the opinion polls? It becomes quite a risky thing to do. Especially given Keir Starmer's previous experience of reshuffles, which it's fair to say haven't always been the smoothest, and people have ended up having to take extra jobs and all the rest well, of it. But it's, it looks easy from the outside, but it's so difficult on the inside. I mean, even at a, even at a council level, when I when I did reshuffles in Newcastle, it was a bit like playing three dimensional chess because you could have a really good idea about where you wanted to get to, but as soon as somebody said actually no i'm not prepared to do that the whole plan starts to fall apart and if you it's even more complex at a government level and because i think what keir will be wanting to do is well ahead of the conference season make sure that he's got the right people in the right shadow portfolios so people place their strengths and he'll want to make sure he's got his best communicators on the significant important issues which, to, to be fair, actually, I think he's more or less got at the moment. You know, Wes, who's obviously launched a health campaign with us, um, Bridget on education and childcare, um, Angie on uh, opportunity, and uh, that plays very much to the Purpose Coalition agenda uh, around improving social mobility, uh, and Johnny Reynolds on, on growth. And... I think you know you can see some really strong performers there, but there are more people I think who are capable of doing more, and so we we may well see a bit of tweaking and a bit of changing of the team over the summer, just so that people are playing properly to their strengths. Do you think we might see enter Shadow Cabot for the first time? For the first time, or again, because that's different. Uh, I, I suppose I suppose either. 
Uh, well, I mean, people are talking about Hillary Ben making a comeback, uh, which be lovely. I mean, Hillary is is terrific. Um, he's got a very dry sense of humour, and uh, one of his fashion things is he always wear Doc Martin boots. I remember meeting her actually at a Labour Party conference last year. And what a lovely man he is! He is just he's a genuine and lovely man. Offered to to help put a Rona banner up. Um, which me, which is uh, not the kind of thing you'd normally expect. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I have the advantage he's very tall, so he's quite handy when it comes to putting banners up. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, I think I think one. Uh, there, there are a few people to watch, not necessarily directly into the Shadow Cabinet, but I think uh, what happens to Alison McGovern would be really interesting. I mean, of course, Alison's a friend of ours. She's done a lot of stuff with the Purpose Coalition over the years, and... Uh, is a terrific advocate for our our kind of agenda in Parliament. So it's great to see that she won the selection. Uh, will be continuing yeah. in a new party seat, and has frankly dealt with some really nasty and hostile politics in our local Labour Party, which I think um, uh, she deserves a lot of credit and payback for because she's held her nerve and stayed with the party. Uh, and I I I think she w may well find herself in a not necessarily shadow cabinet role, but a serial, a serious, a, a, a serious large shadow uh, ministry role, um, and then of course uh, there's uh, the, the the new generation of you know the the, the twenty nineteen intake. There's some really great candidates uh, there. I'm Flo Echelomi, for example. Um, yeah, so uh, very good. Who is absolutely terrific. Um, people, some of the people elected by elections, you know, Sam Dixon uh, in Cheshire, uh, in, in Cheshire, uh, uh, sorry, Chester, and um, Andrew Weston actually, who was making a terrific name for himself in house building. Um, he certainly is. He's he's, and what I really think Andrew has has uh, done an incredible job on it is that cross party working. It's something that the the public want to see. He did a huge amount of work with Simon Clark, and um, probably you know, not politically aligned in any way. Uh, but on, on those key issues like house building, actually, what I, I think is really interesting about Andrew's been doing is coming up with some of those quite interesting new policy ideas. So things like, could you designate uh, all of the land within a mile of a station to be stable for house building? Which is one of the proposals he's just sort of build home of thinking, you know, doing a terrific job. And obviously, you have all the local government experience, like, you be able to. Um, obviously is and uh, I think we'll see uh, I mean, we've already seen a good number of people with significant local experience be selected in parliamentary seats for Labour and so I think we'll see more of that and uh, that means that although the PLP might currently lack government experience the benches are being significantly strengthened with people with local government experience and uh that sort of pragmatic problem-solving uh, approach, uh, where uh, delivery is more important than uh, straightforward party politics, I think is really welcome within Labour. Do we do we think that Keir will use the the reshuffle as an opportunity to align those shadow portfolio, those the the, the shadow portfolios and the roles there to those new government departments that were were formed by Rishi Sunak? We've obviously seen reports that Lucy Powell is keen on taking the shadow science job. 
Um, but do you think you'll use it as an opportunity to, to do that? I honestly don't know. Um, I think I think Key will probably want to keep uh, climate change and energy as a really strong focus. Um, so we, I don't think that'll be wrapped up into a sort of uh, a business and industry uh, ministry. Uh, I think you'll want to keep that focus. I think, I don't think we'll see a return of international development uh, as a separate department. Uh, I mean, all sorts of issues and challenges about it going in with the foreign office. But um, I think, the, you know, reading the rooms, um, although that's not terribly popular within the international development sector, uh, I think uh, it's been done, so why unpick it? Uh, it it's probably going to be within uh, the boat. Point order as well. Reorganizations of government You know, it's one thing when you name it, saying it. I remember chatting to somebody from the new Science Department, and they were saying that they only just got their office. This is about a month ago. I mean, they only just got their office. I mean, this department was established in, in February. That's that's an awful long time to put civil servants, uh, you know, on on hold, on pause whilst they work new structures and, and all the rest of it. And of course. Anything like that, any uh, restructure of government, there's a hiatus period where everybody sort of looks internally at uh, what's, uh, you know, where they're going to end up. And as a result, it loses focus on delivery. It's one of the big mistakes that George Osborne made uh, when he became Chancellor back in 2010, because he announced that he was going to review all of Labour's infrastructure uh, project uh, funding. And what that did was for about 18 months, put on hold a lot of major schemes that meant that, that that had a huge ripple effect all the way down the system. And so people were laid off, critical skills were lost, momentum was lost in terms of particular schemes, and it took a, another three or four years to get back up to previous delivery levels. So one of the things that Labour will have to think really carefully about uh, ahead of the election, uh, and particularly in terms of what the government structures might look like the other side of the election, is yes, reform government to make it work better, but do it in a way that is going to be least disruptive to delivery, because the crucial time to establish credibility to deliver is in the first few months, first year or so, really, of an incoming government. And if you don't do it then, you really lose the opportunity. And that's why I think, although there's a recognition major reform of the civil service is needed, there's a bit of a question about how to do it or when to do it in terms of the parliamentary cycle. We've got a lot to look forward to then. Conference, if we get over the summer, reshuffles. It's going to be a busy couple of months. And certainly we have a huge number of Purpose Coalition events in the next couple of months. We do. We, we do. And don't forget, you've got to watch the Barbie movie. That's worth looking forward to as well. Um, but uh, we, I will take your advice. From the autumn onwards, uh, we, we're ramping up the Purpose Coalition work particularly in terms of Purpose for Labour. And uh, we're, we'll be organising a series of roundtables around the missions and associated policy themes. Uh, because there's just so much really interesting stuff happening in our, in our members at the moment, some really exciting stuff that's worth sharing on a bigger platform. And we'll be working out how to do that at conference and in the months beyond as well. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. Hopefully get a break over the summer and then straight back into it yeah Are you, any plans to go anywhere nice well i'm off to italy uh in a couple of weeks time uh oh, very nice um very nice but very hot 
Uh, yeah, the hot at the moment, and particularly going to our point on uh, policies. And, and somewhere else in the UK at the end of the month, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure where yet. Where yet. No, look forward mm. to it. What about you, Nick? Well, do you know, normally um, we'll be heading up to Scotland uh, this time of year, um, but uh, we've got a big holiday planned in the autumn uh, going to Canada. So uh, this August, it's going to be mainly many day trips out. But that's great because in Newcastle in the northeast, there's so many amazing places to do day trips to, whether it's Lindisfarne or the Durham Dales or Barnard Castle. I might go get my eyes tested. Um, so, uh, yeah, great summer to look forward to. Well, have a great time, and we will uh, do a racing. Well, good to talk to you, and uh, have a good summer. And uh, the Forbes and McPherson show will be back online in September. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this episode of The Friday Take interesting and informative. And if you did, please subscribe and give us a rating. And be sure to share with your friends, family and colleagues. Tune in next week for another episode of The Friday Take.